Welcome to the Emergence Sessions podcast. Sessions is a ministry of Emergence Church that exists to equip us to walk as disciples of Jesus by growing in knowledge and in our ability to live wisely in His world. Now the first thing I wanted to do tonight, so this is the last class out of six We've discussed a bunch of times now, normally this is taught over anywhere from 25 to 50 weeks. So um, I hope that I've wet your whistle and that you've, uh, you know, you want to dive into it again. Um, that's really been my desire to give as much academics as I can without, make, you know, making sure that it doesn't take away from the ministry part of the class and the theology part of the class. So that if we can think biblically, that we it helps us as Christians as we go out into the world. And I will tell you this: um, you probably don't need to be tired. Again, I don't know everybody, but the more you study the Word of God, and the more you make an attempt to ground yourself properly in, in godly wisdom, God is going to use you. He's going to use you. Sometimes He needs you to minister to yourself. And very often it's going to be how he uses you to minister to others and, and how you bring grace and you bring a, new, a deeper sense of your Christianity to people in need. Uh, but, man, starting with the Word of God and starting with the, the study of the Word of God is the way to do it. And for those of you, you, you know, this is if this is your first time doing a Bible study, you sure picked a good book. I mean, this is, this is not an easy book to listen to. It's a very hard but one of the most important subjects we could possibly, possibly study, which is the sovereignty and the grace of God. So I wanted to first start out with this. So if you've been blessed by the class and you've enjoyed the class and you think that the class has been worth your time, I'd like you to give a round of applause to Margaret because this wasn't my idea. This was my <laughs> wife's idea. <laughs> one of the epistles of John, like two pages. So we were out to dinner, and I said, yeah, they want me to teach this year. And she goes, oh, teach Job. Job. But then it was about a millisecond to say, I mean, God just said, teach Job. And that came from Margaret. So thank her. If you didn't like the class, then it was my idea. <laughs> but we're good. And the other thing that I am extremely encouraged about is that so many of the younger people that have showed up over the um, over the course of the class, you know, when you're when you're younger in the faith, this is a hard book to listen to, and a hard book to study. So I'm very blessed, and I, I've said this a bunch of times that you guys have blessed me during the week. I wanted to make sure I thanked you for all the emails we get. I promised that when we were done with the class, I would answer the, the theological questions and the apologetical questions. I just I was literally rewriting the class almost on my way down here, so I didn't want to stop and, and start answering emails, but I will be doing it. We're going to Italy in 10 days or something, so I'll be taking a nap between now and Italy, and then I promise I'll answer all the emails. So I want to, I want to answer them you know, in depth. Um, so here's where we're going to start. We're in the last class. We're dealing with God's response. We're past Elihu. We're past the dialogues. Uh, what you have in front of you is a short synopsis of the class, but what I've also given is a lot of people have asked me for a bibliography of books that I've read that I used to teach this class. So on page two and three, you have authors, 
Um, I did not write names of books. I wasn't going to list 50 books. And, and I'm 67 years old. I've read more than a couple books. So what I thought would be in your best interest, I listed in the, in the apologetics and the science and apologetics section, I've listed the top 15 people that I think are the most credible and most intelligent. And most of those scientists came to faith in Christ through science. Okay? So now they have a career, uh, you know, refuting Darwinism, refuting a bunch of things, but also showing how science brought them to faith. So it's credible. Um, and then I separated the rest of the books there. Some are just on theology, some are on encouragement. But I hope that you, you know, you find, sometimes it's hard. You, you want to go get a new book, you want to get something. Um, maybe that piece of paper will help you, okay? Since um, I'm concerned that I make sure that I handle all the points, I'm going to speak a little quickly. My goal is to get us done earlier so that we have more time for Q&A and discussion and you guys can minister to each other like we did the other week. So that's going to be my goal. I might speak quicker. But um, I'm going to try to get to the Q&A as quick as I can. So we started out with a sharing a sentiment that wasn't really exclusively mine, which was that the book of Job is not about Job. It's about God and God's sovereignty and God's grace, which is my opinion. I don't think I hadn't come across anyone that really added God's grace in there. It was always the book's about Job and his sufferings or the book is about God. But it's really about God's, God, God's sovereignty, and God's grace. And God uses Job to teach us that lesson. Whether we are in the faith, considering Christian faith, or we could not care less if you're listening to this at home about God, our soul usually cries upward for help and answers when we suffer. We almost always look, if you're an agnostic or an atheist, or you have friends that are, isn't that the first place that they go whenever something goes wrong? They either come to you because you're the religious one, right? Or they ask God. So sufferings and trials always bring with them more questions. The greater our knowledge of God, how he really defines himself, the deeper our relationship will be with him and the deeper our relationship is with the one we call our Heavenly Father. The stronger we are in Christ when trials come, the better we can minister to ourselves and to others. Here's just one example of God's revealed knowledge and how it's designed by Him to help us when life gets hard. Um, this is just one promise. It's 1 Corinthians 2, 7-12, and, and this is Paul's drawing from Isaiah 64. Now, consider how different this verse is going to sound to you that have been to all these classes now and you're in class 6. Just ring the bell a little bit. Think about how different this verse is going to sound now that you're in class 6, then when you were from class 1. 1 Corinthians 2, 7 and 12. The wisdom we speak of is the mystery of God. No eye has seen, nor ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. But it was to us that God revealed these things by his spirit. For his spirit searches out everything and shows us God's deep secrets. No one can know a person's thoughts except that person's own spirit. And no one can know God's thoughts except God's own spirit. And we have received God's spirit, not by the world's spirit, so we can know the wonderful things God has freely given us. 1 Corinthians 2, 7-12. As you might remember, I almost always read from the Amplified Version. 
But remember one of the things that we've talked about over and over again in this class? Remember we talked about that we, we you, you know, you hear the word sovereignty, you hear the word spirit a lot, and you hear the word wisdom a lot. And I've tried to elevate, because it happens to me often when I'm reading and studying, I, I minimize the drama and the majesty of some of these words. Remember I showed you the one verse where the same Greek word for spirit, where God's spirit is um, searching God out, and the same spirit is used to search us out? So God is speaking, to, God has given us, if you're in the faith, and if you're not, you're invited to. But it's the same spirit that you and I have. What I'm going to try to do in this class is give some of the answers. Not going to speak for God. I'm not going to tell you what God didn't say about the why question. But hopefully, I'm going to share some of the things that God has taught us up until this point so that you can know how to minister to yourself. And what did Paul say? Build yourself up in the holy faith and be able to minister to others. And one of those ways is you have the spirit of the living God living inside you. And that spirit, one of the things that it's designed to do, what does it say? To lead us and guide us into all truth concerning Jesus Christ. And that's a deep, deep concept that we have God's spirit living inside of us. But that's part of the answer on how do we endure trials is we have the spirit of God inside us. And when we read or spend time in the word or with other believers that we respect that are mature, it is that spirit that bears witness to truth. And it's that spirit that bears witness to what have we been talking about the whole class, godly wisdom. And we have it living inside of us, if we are in faith. It's an amazing concept. My goal, as I always do when I teach, I want to lay a foundation to go from one point and a progressive thought, the other to the other. The foundation to the next point is always important, and this is what I wanted to lay here. No one but God and you know all the personal blessings the strength and the wisdom that God has given you during your hardships. Only God knows what he has in store for you going forward. But I can promise you that spending time in the word of God is always something the Holy Spirit will use to fellowship with you. That's how we guard our hearts for the days of trouble. That's one of the lessons Job needed to learn personally from God. The enemy of our soul has a, a much bigger avenues to shipwreck our faith if we're not uh, well-versed to the degree that we can be in the Word of God. That's part of what Peter was talking about. Grow in the grace, right? Which is infers godly humility, the, the grace of God, which is God's unmerited favor, and then in the knowledge, and you're equipping yourself up to handle trials. The lessons were personal to Job, but they were also for our sakes also. Because God was defining himself and his attributes against what man was defining God to be. So with all that, let's, do, let's really dig into this. Uh, there's really just one response by God. You always hear God's two responses. It's, you know, we've gone into this word and we've made it into two <coughs> chapters. There's really one response from God. But we'll say, well, we're going to split it up into two. So let's look at some of the common thoughts about God's appearance finally into this drama by the sources that I've been studying. Thank you, brother. Uh, I'm going to read Job 31-35, I think. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't get that. Anymore. So in Job 31-35, Job cries out, may the Almighty answer me. 
So Job's been begging for God to step in and answer him since day one, right? By this time, Job has asked God to speak to him 36 times already. And this probably went on for over about two years. Not two days, not two months, about two years. I'm not going to rehash why. You can go back and listen to some of the early classes. Ellicott's commentary says this. The chapter brings to the grand climax the catastrophe of the poem. Unless all was to remain hopelessly uncertain and dark, there could be no solution of the question so fiercely and obstinately debated but by the intervention of him whose government was the matter of the debate. And so the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, or the tempest, that is to say the tempest which had been long gathering and which had been the subject of Elihu's remarks. The one argument which is developed in the remaining chapters is drawn from man's ignorance. There's so much in nature that man cannot understand that it is absurd for him to suppose that he can judge rightly in the matters touching God's moral government of the world. So here's the symbolism. I think I've mentioned this a couple times. Um, do you know what I mean when I say biblical symbolisms? I know some people do, and some people might not, and I don't want to speak past that if I don't give a quick thing. Biblical symbolism is when you read a verse, and um, of course I can't think of one right off the top of my head. We're going to get into a couple. And, and people will say, oh, that revelation, it's all over revelation. Uh, the beast, the horns of the beast. And everyone has an idea of what that symbolism means. Unless the language in that verse is tied and you can tie it to other things in the Bible, you can cross-reference it, well, people often get into what's called symbolism. And they'll use a verse to say it means this, it means that, I think this, I think that. You have that in some of this part of Job. And I'm going to touch on it, but we're not going to spend much time on it. And, and the, the glaring example is Leviathan and the Queen. They they're not as important as everyone makes them out to be. But um, here's a symbolism that I can endorse. In Elihu's speeches, uh, they culminated in describing the beginning stage and the increasing whirlwind, the dark clouds, the tempest, that was the storm. Elihu was describing, you remember he was describing the storm God speaks in the whirlwind. God speaks in the tempest. The dark clouds are coming. See over the hill, the world, the tempest that's coming. That symbolism is perfect for this book. It's perfect. Because now God steps in. And as he has done, well, since I believe this is the oldest book in the Bible, not the oldest event, not Adam and Eve, but the oldest book, later on, you'll see God speaking in, in nature often. So Elihu sets the stage for what's coming. It's one of the reasons why many commentators think Elihu got done with his speech. Remember, Elihu was not short on words. We kind of think he would still be going if we, you know, if time didn't set in, he didn't crow. So we think, I agree with the commentators that say the symbolism there is that God is on his way. He's getting closer and closer and closer. The tempest and the storms show that he's arrived. Everybody stops talking. Now God's talking. So this is clearly how we should feel about this book in this section that we finally come to. It's like a great piece of classical music. A piece that I love is called Adagio for Strings. It's by Samuel Barber. It, it starts out extraordinarily quiet. It was actually used in Eisenhower's um, funeral. It's nothing but strings, very quiet. And it crescendos to such a point that you're literally like, okay, make it stop, make it stop. 
But that's sort of what we have here. We've crescendoed in Job's life to the point where God steps in. And that's what you have. That's what this, this uh, whirlwind and the tempest, that's what it all signifies. But again, I think these were literal events. I don't think it's just poetry. The book of Job stands as the quintessential timeless document that teaches us several things about God. That God alone is holy and sovereign over all things, good and evil. That his grace and his love for us is unconditional. It's expressed in the gospel, which is his free gift to all who receive it. And that no amount of and no lack of material blessings are a measure or a reflection of our spiritual relationship with him. We're saved by grace alone. Up until this point, all was hopelessly uncertain and depressing for Job. There could be no solution to the questions fiercely debated unless God would intervene. Job's lament was similar to Christ. Um, does somebody have Psalm 22, 1 and 2? And the next one would be uh, Job 36.3 and Job 36.2. We're coming up. Does anyone have that Psalm? Yes. Great. Nice and loud. You get, just so you know, I don't want you to be nervous or anything, but for all eternity, you're going to be on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away when I groan for help? Every day I call to you, my God, but you do not answer. Every night I lift my voice, but I find no relief. Jesus quotes this in Matthew 27 also. I, I know I've belabored the point. I've mentioned to you, you guys have been very patient, very kind. You never know who's stepping into a class. You never know um, when people listen to a class digitally that they might not have heard anything before. You never know if we're going to have a person that just showed up for one class and we just got him right now. So we make points every now and then. Um, but Jesus used... We're good, right? <laughs> um, we, I've said this before, but I mean, I know that I used to blame myself for um, asking God why. And then one day it just dawned on me as I was reading that Jesus asked God why. Jesus went from the Garden of Gethsemane where he was praying and accepting humbly God's call on his life, not questioning it, but accepting it, moves to the tortures and the cross. And by the time he was in the middle of that, he asked God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So we've, we've mentioned it here before, that's not a sin. I think that is God being so gracious and so merciful to us that we have an example that if, if we do that, it doesn't mean God's not going to spank us for that. Judging God is different than asking God why. So finally, we're all going to get to the point that we've been waiting for, right? We're going to get God's going to answer all the why questions. Maybe, maybe not. So why did Job suffer if he was blameless? By extension, why have you suffered? wasn't your fault? Why did you lose your job if it wasn't your fault? Why did you lose a loved one if it wasn't your fault? Why did, why did the, the, the divorce happen if it wasn't your fault? Or a child abandons the family? Or you, know, you lose all your wealth in the, in, you know, the Great Depression? Pick one. You, know, you all have personal trials that are probably horrific at times. So the why question does matter. And I think by the time we're done with this, there is answers. God gives us answers when you read between the cracks. But we find out that God is not here to be ordered around by us. 
and respond how we want him to. He's not here to join the debate, and he's not here to answer the why question that they're asking. He's here to answer and, and develop the questions he wants them to understand. So remember we said there's a folder called a Rickism. This is going to be a Rickism folder. I believe God knows that we may not know what to do with the answers if he answered the why question. If, you, if God had answered yours or my why question, why did this happen, why did that happen, we might make a religion out of it. We might hold it up on a pedestal. If God was to answer our why question, we might use it to judge other people. I got my, this is why God allowed this to happen to me. You've got to accept that why answer for yourself. I think that's why God didn't answer specifically the why question. I think we would make it almost into a religion. It would be the, and we would go, we would go to it every time something else happens and miss out on the chance by grace <coughs> to learn a new lesson in God's walk. That's the Rickism folder. That's the, I think that's the last one for the class. So God has been on trial the whole time. First, Satan questioned him, right? And Satan questions God's fairness with Job. Claims that you know, Job loves you and follows you and is your servant because you're bribing him. But eventually, Job questions him. And Job questions God's fairness also. And Job questions God's justice also. This is the setting that God is walking into. Also consider this uh, as a thought. God didn't step in after chapter 1 and 2, did he? What was Job saying in chapter 1 and 2? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What does Job say to Mrs. Job? God gives us good things. Why should we not accept evil from him or bad things from him? God didn't step in there. God stepped in when he decided to step in, and it was way down the road, and Job had changed. And Job's answers and his responses, and Job was getting to look at his heart, was changed. So both gods created angels who were created to minister to God and to man, also angels were created to minister to us by God, and man who was created in the image of God and to have personal loving relationship with God are both accusing God of not being fair. So Job is still suffering, but still faithful. Job hasn't cursed God yet. Imagine going through what he's been going through for two years. Now he's sitting on a dung heap, scraping the boils off his arm. He's got nothing. So in chapter 36, the last things God hears before he speaks, and Eli speaks is Elihu's claims of perfect wisdom. Elihu claims to speak for God many times, right? You saw that? So I would imagine God sitting there listening to Elihu say, I have perfect wisdom. God's spirit is speaking through me. And some of the things Elihu said were horrible. You can imagine God saying, really? I don't remember giving you permission to speak for me, especially if you're going to be that stupid about it. Right? <laughs> so that's why I don't agree with the scholars that think Elihu was a, was a servant <coughs> of Christ. Um, he said many great things, and he said many good uh, creation apologetic things. But I don't think he was an exact example. But I want to set the stage for what God walks into. So here's just some of the things Elihu was saying to Job in God's name, claiming they were God's thoughts. Who has uh, chapter 36, verse 3, please? I do. And then next will be 36.2, and then next will be 36.5. So nice and loud, 36.3, please. I will present profound arguments for the righteousness 
of my creator. I am telling you nothing but the truth, for I am a man of great knowledge. Elihu is reminding Job he speaks for God. 36.2, please. Let me go on. I will show you the truth, for I have not finished defending God. So we spoke about this last week. Do you think that's righteous indignation? Is that legitimate toward God? Or do you think Elihu is sinning, saying something like that? I think he's defending God's character. I think he's being arrogant. There's all the scholars right there. <laughs> That's it. Save yourself the three thousand dollars. That's it. So there's one. There's one. Uh, I don't think God needs to be defended. Yeah, but I mean, there is one. There is one uh, source of, of commentaries that's like seven thousand dollars to buy. Get a lot, but I'm telling you, that's it. It's not more complicated. Than that. So what do we do? We don't. We don't come down and create doctrine from this because the language, remember I mentioned in the first class, the language in, in Job is considered to be the hardest language in the Old Testament to translate because it's some of the earliest forms and mostly written on pottery and a, a lot of, and there's not a lot of nouns and verbs in Hebrew and um, a lot of the words were used interchangeably like cursing, blessing curse is the easy example I can think of. I'm no Hebrew scholar but I can tell you that most of the people I've read, you know, they go crazy over the book because it's hard to, but what did we say a couple times? If the Holy Spirit has chosen, and he has, to put this book in the Bible, and he has, in the way that he has put it in the Bible, we can trust that, that God wants us to study it. And we can trust, because we have the Spirit of God living inside us, that if we do our best to study something, God will do his best to bring, to bring to us what we need at that time. So, uh, we have, who has 36.5? I did. Uh, God is mighty. He does not let the wicked live, but gives justice to the afflicted. So, Elihu is saying this to Job. Um, what's Job been doing for two years? He's been sitting there afflicted for two years. So, again, what did we say a couple times? That sometimes sharing verses can cause more harm? In condemnation to someone, than ministering and, and encouraging, and Job is going through this. And one of the things, the practical lessons we get is to look at it and say, "Wow, I want to help when I can be called to help, but I got to be careful what how, what verses I use and how I use them." Um, who has thirty-six verse seven? Over here. He never takes his eyes off the innocent, but he exalts them forever. If they are bound and chained and caught up in a web of trouble, he shows them the reason. So, again, Elihu's telling Job, if you were innocent, God would have given you the answer. So there's Job, and this is Job sitting there again. Now, remember, one of the things they lost was their children were, were crushed to death at the end of a whole bunch of other trials. These are not small things. I, it's, it's no coincidence that by the time God was done with the prologue of this book, this man has lost everything except his life and his wife. Everything. He lost his career. He lost his job. He lost his way to make money. He lost his servants. They were murdered. They didn't go out on strike. They were murdered. He lost all of his cattle. He lost his possessions. And then he eventually lost his health. 
which meant you couldn't go back and, and do anything about it. So I always bring that out to, to get the juxtaposition between what, the, what this person lost and where he's at now. But I mean, Elihu was telling him again, well, if you were really innocent, God would give you a reason. Well, Job hasn't gotten a reason yet. So this is what God is coming into. God is, this, because Elihu was telling Job that I'm speaking for God, one of the worst things that you and I can do to somebody that's suffering is to go tell them why God has them suffering. We have no stinking clue why God allows suffering. And we're not called to judge. We're called to encourage and minister and be an ambassador for Christ. But again, I love the practical lessons in this book. You can't get away from it. So in the name of God, Elihu is saying, God would have given Job all the reasons Job needed if only Job was really innocent. How loving and compassionate. Here's the last one from Elihu. I think I'm doing this one. Nobody has 36 verse 11, right? I do. Like I said, I gave that one up. <laughs> if they listen and obey God, they will be blessed with prosperity throughout their lives. All their years will be pleasant. This is my favorite one from Elihu. And fa by favorite, I mean it gives me an excuse to dislike him the most. Right? It's the same thing with Bildad, who told Job, oh, I know why your children were crushed to death. Because they sinned. Job didn't even know they sinned, and then you just told Job that, that that's why they were killed, and you also told Job that the sacrifices he made for his children weren't good enough for God. God had a little measuring stick up there, and you're, all Job knows is his children are dead. So this is where Elihu says, if they listen and obey God, they will be blessed with prosperity throughout their lives, and all their years will be pleasant. Is that true of Job's life? Is, is Job's life pleasant and blessed? Has that been true of your life? Your whole life as a Christian? I'm not talking BC. From the, from the moment you became a Christian, has your life always been blessed? Has it always been pleasant? If it has, God bless you. You don't need a class. You're done. You pass. I'll just put an A on the mark. But it's not, it, we don't know anyone. It certainly didn't happen to Jesus. But Elihu is saying he speaks for God, and this is what God is listening to. This is why I believe one of the reasons the book of Job exists is that God needed to define himself in the areas of sovereignty and grace. Otherwise, this is the theology that we would be living with. We would be living with a works theology. If I'm rich, I'm good with God. And, and Jesus proved that point with the rich man, didn't he? The rich man kept all the precepts of God to best probably like Job, to the best of his ability. But it wasn't until Jesus said to him, give up all of your wealth. He was like, whoa, let's, let's rediscuss, let's have another conversation about this. So that's the retribution principle. That's why God had to redefine himself. So here's Elihu telling Job, if you, um, if you listen and obey God, what, what, that's my phrase, clarity by contrast. So you must not be obeying God. So it's not true of me, it's not true of you guys, it certainly wasn't true of Jesus. I get to challenge and torture all of you guys now because I'm going to be asking you guys to answer a lot of questions. You're in class six, you're not in class one now. So it's hard to discuss because we also sometimes want to defend God. So we'll almost rationalize our sufferings to ourselves sometimes. But if we have a proper understanding of sovereignty and what to do about these things that happen in our lives, 
and where to go to get counsel and where to go to get wisdom, I think we're better off than we were without it, right? So what we need to do is to think biblically with correct doctrinal knowledge of what God really says about himself in these areas, about his commitment to us in every aspect of our lives, and how he ultimately proved his unconditional love and plan for our redemption by coming and allowing himself to be tortured, crucified for our sins, and to prove that he understands what we are going That promises for those in the faith, and it's an invitation for everyone who hears this class and is suffering with no hope. Christ, who is God, offers you a peace that can pass understanding through his gift to be born again. It's the beginning of getting godly wisdom. Without the Spirit of God, you won't have it. According to Elihu, if you are not blessed with prosperity throughout your life and if you do not have all your years coming in as pleasant, you're not obeying God. It's on you. So then what? It must be your fault because you're, you're falling short of listening and obeying God. That a truism, that's true, that we should listen and obey God, and if we do, we will be blessed in whatever way God chooses to bless us. But it's Elihu is presenting it as a as the retribution principle, which is do good things and you get good things, right? Remember we said that? So it's a works system to God. And this is the stage that God is walking in on. Because Elihu is representing not only to Job, but to the three friends. And we don't know how many hundreds of people were sitting around. So this is becoming the theology of the of the moment. What if God does nothing and lets it stand? So here comes God. God finally speaks up. The language used to describe his appearance is very telling. He's been silent for 37 chapters of arguments about him in what probably was a year to two years of Job's suffering. In my head, I sort of thought this is like God's way of sitting shiver, right? Rick, Rick is a it's just It just dawned on me. Like, you know, we, we had the friends come and sit sh shiver for seven, seven days, and then Job finally... So God has been silent this whole time. Reminded me of Shem. Um, I'm going to read chapter 38, verses 1 and 2 in the Amplified. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel and questions my authority and wisdom by words without knowledge? So there are some commentators that say it's possible <coughs> God was asking Job about Elihu. That God's first response was, Who's this guy speaking about me without knowledge? And it's not the fringe. There's some reputable scholars that think it might have been Elihu that died. But the majority of them think that God was speaking to Job. But it's not unreasonable to think that it might have been Elihu. Because the tense is, who is this? Not, Job, I'm speaking to you. But in this last four chapters, you do have uh, a, a structure, a poetic structure that makes it, sound, makes it look like the author is inserting. And then God said to Job, so you have that structure that exists in Job, and that's, that's where the other scholars say, no, he's not speaking about Elihu. But some very reputable scholars have come on and said, yeah, absolutely. We think that God walked in, he was tired of hearing Elihu misrepresent him, and he says, the Lord answered Job out of the world when he said, who is this that darkens counsel questioning my authority and wisdom by words without knowledge? Whether God is speaking to Job or Elihu doesn't change the doctrine. Doesn't change the theology of the book. I'm just, I just like the idea that Elihu might be getting spanked. That's how I took it. Right? 
So the first thing God says, who is perverting my counsel? Uh, maybe the darkened counsel God is referring to up front may be all the bad counsel Elihu is giving God. That's what one, I think it was Lisa Mark just said that. If this is true, then Elihu certainly is rebuked by God. And, and when you're reading Elihu, don't you want him to get smacked around a little bit? By the time I'm done reading Elihu, I'm hoping somebody smacks him around. Because he's, he's, he's claiming to speak for God. When somebody is suffering, when someone's at the most vulnerable time in their lives, to walk away from God is usually when they're suffering. And you come in and pretend to be God? It's So what's the significance of the whirlwind statements? I'm going to share some of the commentators. One, commentator, uh, one scholar says this, out of the whirlwind means a severe storm, probably the one Elihu described was approaching in Job 37, 21 to 24. God is often represented as speaking to people in this manner. He spoke with lightnings and storms on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, 16-19. He frequently represents as appearing amidst the thunders and lightnings of a tempest as a symbol of his majesty. Uh, Cross-reference, I wrote uh, Psalm 18, 9-13 and bracket 3, 3-6. And again, email me, I'll give you my private notes anytime you want. Um, the word here rendered whirlwind means rather a storm or a tempest or dark cloud. It does not mean what, and this is a legitimate time to say lower critics, uh, at least in my studies, it does not mean that it's just a poetic figurative term. Okay? It's literal. At least the, the scholars that I have. So I'm going to just add this. This description of a whirlwind and a storm often is supposed to mean God was coming to chastise and correct. He's not in a good mood. And that's, that's across the board. So the Clark commentary puts it this way. The Hebrew word translated whirlwind signifies something turbulent, tumultuous, and violently agitated and was intended to fill Job's mind with a sense of foreboding and reverent sense of the majesty of God. I like to lay the foundations sometimes when we get into some of this stuff. And this is a great foundation that we're going to be walking into when we hear from God. One last description from Jameson Foster and Brown commentary. Jehovah appears unexpectedly in a whirlwind which was already, already gathering in Job 37.1-2. The symbol of judgment coming to Job in Psalm 53 and 4, God surprises Job and God's response is not what Job was expecting. God doesn't show up with any answers or any reasons for Job's trials. Instead, God has questions, over 77 questions. He asked Job, since he can't explain the phenomenon of God's natural government, how can he then hope to understand the principles of his moral and spiritual government? So you have the man that has been faithful. He's not cursed God. God has won that court case at this point. Satan loses. God steps in. Job is still faithful. Job is still suffering. If you're Job... I, I think of it this way. You saw your friends traveling on their way to see you, your heart probably leaps. You're going to get some comfort out of it. Got, they got half a chapter of comfort, basically, from Eliphaz. The rest of it was accusations for probably a year that went on. You see God coming in the whirlwind. You, you know that in the language that's being used here, 
he might not be coming to, to tell you how great a job he did. Because remember, Job ended up very differently than he started. But he's God. He gets to do, say, what he wants, when he wants, how he wants. And at the end of the day, it's always for our benefit. It's always for our blessing. But there are, there's heresies to this day that teach against this. That God would not be mean to you if you are living rightly with God. If you're living rightly with God, pray, and God will give you what you ask for. This is just one of the heresies that this book teaches against. The greatest man in all the earth in chapter 1, and look at how he suffered. He did nothing wrong. Nothing. God called him blameless in the heavenly realm to Satan. And look what God allowed. And some of the verses say God brought on. So I know one person asked me, like, well, I had heard that he just allowed it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. If you and I had a friend standing in the parking lot and we saw a car going at them, we would go probably run and grab them and move them out of the way. It would be our natural thing. God didn't do that. He let the car run over Job. So whether he allowed it or caused it, I think if you look at the language, it really doesn't matter. God was in charge of this thing. So God's vindicated by Job's faithfulness. And remember, God called it integrity. Remember what we said in the class, you can't, you can't grab integrity for yourself. You usually get integrity by being faithful through trials. But God uses that word integrity a couple times for Job. So Job stays faithful to God. He doesn't take his own life, which is often a temptation when you're suffering like this. So God here is teaching against suicide. One of the things he's teaching. He doesn't curse God. God wins that court case and shows that man can serve and love God freely. We don't always have to be bribed. But now God has to correct Job and all the rest of the crew. They've been judging Job, and Job has been judging God. But none had all knowledge of all things. God accuses Job of falling into the same pit his friends fell into, giving counsel without all knowledge. So when you hear that term, all knowledge, what, what do you think that it means? God gave us all. Yeah. The wisdom that we don't get other than unless God gives to us. We can't judge people's hearts. And that's where this work is for all eternity's benefit. Perfect knowledge of all things is not only of creation, but of our hearts and spiritual matters. Remember we said that's level three wisdom? Shout out to Dr. Uh, Garrett. The phrase without all knowledge in Hebrew here means that God's allowance of Job's trials was a decree or plan full of purpose from God, which Job distorts by judging God falsely. Something that we probably have done ourselves when we suffer. Probably, eventually, judge God falsely. This also reminds me of the dilemma that uh, how many people have seen the shack? Has everyone seen the shack? Yeah. Okay. So in the shack, I know that you know some Christians loved it. Some Christians think it's heresy. I thought it was a great movie. I, I'm not going to lose any sleep over a movie. But one of the things that I thought was interesting for this class in the movie. There's a section where the Holy Spirit, uh, and they use an Indian word, uh, Sarayu, is saying to Mackenzie, who's the, the guy in the movie who had lost his daughter, uh, and he had suffered horribly as a child. She's, she's showing him a movie of his childhood and then his father's childhood. 
and she's and she's showing him his two children up on the screen, and she's saying well, one of them might have to die. Would you choose which one it is? And he's like, I can't, I can't, I can't do that. But she says, but that's in the cards. It's going to happen. You, so you're God. You do it. He said, I can't. So the next thing she says to him is, what about, look at this, what happened to your father. That he was abused horribly. Abused physically and sexually when he was a little boy. And then he abused, he beat physically Mackenzie. So all Mackenzie had, in terms of his thought for God, was hatred. He would say, I don't believe in him, but I hate his guts. You can't hate someone you don't really believe. You can hate him. You can, not, you can blame him, but you believe him. There's something in your, in your heart and your spirit that tells him that he's there. But Mackenzie had not seen what he thought was anything good. So the Holy Spirit is saying to him, you don't have all knowledge. You didn't know that your father was abusing you because he was abusing and only God, through his grace and patience, ministered to your father before he died. And now Mackenzie's here. And God says to Mackenzie, the character who's playing God, your problem, Mackenzie, is you don't think I love you because of the suffering that you've gone through. And that's always going to be, the, the, that's always going to be what we're challenged with, right? And if we give in to that challenge, the enemy of our soul wins that battle. So... My reason for bringing that in was just to lay the foundation of where we're going to go now. Is that sovereignty and grace has to be defined by God. It can't be defined by our trials. It can't be defined by how we think our trials ended up. Because we don't have all knowledge. The Holy Spirit gives us hope in this area. Did I, I gave somebody Romans 8.28. I want to interject some answers to these questions. I didn't. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That's a biblical answer to our dilemma. All things work together for the good. It doesn't mean we're going to like when it happens or how it happens, but if God has made that promise, it's one of those things we should cling to. So we might as well realize that God didn't write this as a... Um, as a, a little story for Job and his family. He wrote it for all eternity. And since we are blessed to read it, we are now accountable for the lessons, for its doctrine and its theology and the principles that it teaches us about God. God starts by telling Job to get ready for the dialogue he's been asking for. So uh, chapter 38.3, God says, Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you can instruct me. I wrote a note to myself, can God be sarcastic? <laughs> you can instruct me. Dress for action is a military term. In other words, like, give it your best shot. Whatever you got, let's, let's do it. But can you, I will question you, can you instruct me? This is not what Job expected. Job expected answers, not questions. Nature was the first great proof of God's existence at that time. I told you up until this, the end of the 16th century, most, most if you hear about the age of enlightenment, it's always the 17th, I think it was the end of the 16th century. Until then, creation was often looked at as being a proof of God. So, well, um, nature was the first great proof of God's existence at that time. It represented the most intellectual and compelling argument for the existence of an omniscient, omnipresent, all-powerful creator. 
Only God could have made the world and keep it running. But don't miss this. Was it Charles Stanley who used to say, think with me? Are you? Listen. Are you listening? Are you listening? Are you listening? Listen. Are you listening? That's, listen a, that's a public speaking when you say listen, but I feel funny saying that. I feel like I'm yelling at you. So, so I, I just said, I'm saying it this way. Don't miss this. Because it's, it's the reason God starts out the way he does with Job. Job sees the whirlwind coming. He believes, as did Elihu, that God will speak when it arrives. Job may have had the same sense of relief he had when he first saw his friends arriving. Possibly that once God speaks, he will vindicate him. God starts out challenging and rebuking Job instead of immediately praising him for, for not confessing any sin and not cursing God. And if, and if he cursed God, he would have been relieved of his sufferings. But he would have also proven Satan to be right. I always used to wonder why God didn't start out with praising Job's faithfulness. I honestly did. Why wasn't that the first thing that God said when he walked on the stage? Job has been doing a pretty good job until the last couple of chapters. But again, what would we have done if we were him? I think we would have done as much, if not worse. I know I, I probably I have. When I say I probably I have. <laughs> I've cursed God in, in horrible times. I'm still here by his grace, by his forgiveness, because God was judging my heart, not my lips. Remember, Satan wanted him to curse God out loud so that the people around him would be affected. And the angels would be affected because neither of them can, can judge your heart. But if, if you as a Christian are cursing God and you're suffering, the people that are looking at you, and you know they're looking at you, will say, what's, what's, how, you know, how good is God in your life? But you know that I don't, think for a second that the trials are easy. They that we're ever easy. I just know that God wants us to endure and gives us these tools to endure through those trials. Okay? Um, because God starts out challenging Job, he lets Job know that Job can learn something from the fact that in the first uh, and second chapters, when Job was contrite and humble before God, that God did not need challenge him. God was honoring that attitude. But by the end of the friends' dialogues, Job had revealed what all mankind would reveal in their heart in one way or another, which was that our fallen sinful nature is always capable of pride against God and justifying ourselves because we think we're pretty good people and we don't deserve what we're going God needed to redefine what a right relationship with him looked like not let us define it. So God goes on a National Geographic video tour and lists one more inspiring thing, if not terrifying, natural occurrence after another to prove to Job that he has no place in questioning God's ability to judge all things. I'm gonna, you're gonna bear with me. I ask you to bear with me here. I'm gonna read a couple things. In chapter 38 to 40, God challenges Job, where were you, Job, when I, or can you, Job, as God declares several things? Where were you when I laid the foundation in the measures of the earth? In Job 38, 46. Who determined its measurements or stretched out the boundaries on it? Who created the stars, the sea, and its bounds? Job 38, 7 and 11. Who created the morning and its light? Job 38, 12 and 15. The depth of the sea, the gates and shadow of the death, <coughs> of death rather, the breadth of the earth? Job 38, 16 and 18. 
the place of light and darkness, the treasures of snow and the hail for battle. Job 38, 19 to 23. The east wind springs and rain for the earth. Job 38, 24 to 30. The planets, ordinances of heaven, their dominion on the earth. Do you understand the clouds and lightning? In Job 38, 31 and 35. And that's just something. If I ever teach a class on, on apologetics, creation, that's where I'm going. But we just couldn't do it. It was in my notes, and Margaret and I talked about it. She's like, from the at that dinner table when Margaret said you should do Job, I was like, oh yeah, I could teach apologetics. We couldn't get to it. I couldn't get to it. You, you, you guys had no problem getting to it if I would have showed up and been able to do it. But we, I just couldn't get to it. it was way too much. So we might as well get, realize this. <clears throat> um, Job never questioned God about creation. Right? Think about all the things he said. He agreed with God being the creator of the universe. Who can question God's majesty? So that wasn't something Job had done, but God started there. So we're going to take one little turn into Nerd Valley, just one street. As God lists these 40 or 50 things in his first speech, and he goes down, he starts out with, <coughs> where were you when I created the world? And he ends his speech by saying, okay, Job, I'll give you an easy one. Can you even make an eagle create their nest or can you cause a hawk to fly? No? Then how dare you challenge me on my justice and fairness? So think about this. When God starts challenging Job, he starts with the creation of the world. Right? Where were you when I created the world? There's a question. Answer that one, Job. You, have, you who has not all knowledge. You don't have that answer? And he goes down. He goes next, next, next. It's easier and easier and easier and easier until he gets to the point where he's all right. Can you even make an eagle make a nest? Can you make a hawk fly out of, out of their nest? You can't do that either, and you want to challenge me? So I thought that was interesting that God just made it easier and easier. You're not going to get this stuff at the Episcopal Church, right, guys? You might get cake, but you're not going to get this stuff. <laughs> so a few facts that are important. God is asking Job to contend with him over God's acts of creation, but Job never considered that. He never chose that as his argument. He knew that he was in Job 9.3, he knew that was a losing debate. But one writer says, has the plot of the drama perhaps failed at this point? In other words, this makes no sense that God would start his, his discussion here. Has the author used language that does not bring about God's purpose, which is the repentance of Job? Job has already conceded these creation points that God is challenging him with. So why is God asking him about that? I just wrote a couple. In chapter 9, 4 to 10, Job acknowledges God as an irresistible ruler and a wise and mighty Lord over the natural world. In 12, 7 and 10, Job acknowledges he's the ruler over everything in it, and he refers to the creatures of the sky, the deep, as proofs of God's creative power. 12, 11, and 25, Job paints the picture of God's terrible doings among nature and among men. Uh, 26, 5 and 14, where he praises God as the creator and Lord of all things. And lastly, 28-23, where he ascribes absolute wisdom to God as the creator and ruler of the world. So what then is new in the speech of Jehovah that causes Job to humble himself in repentance and becomes ready for the act of redemption which follows in the next speech? This is what's new. God Almighty is showing Job that since Job feels he has the answers on how God should work in the moral universe, God wants Job to first prove he can create or control the physical universe, even in the simplest things 
like willing and able to fly. God also starts with the physical universe because it's less important and easier to redeem than the moral universe. Think of it this way. God is saying that when it comes to my relationship with you, where I should have sovereignty, it's much harder for me to prove that to you in the spiritual realm, in the moral realm, than it is in the physical realm. And Jesus picks up on that point. In Matthew 9, 4, and 5, Jesus says this. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? So Jesus is making the same point right there, that it's not that hard for me to say rise and walk. <clears throat> the real question is, who gets to say your sins are forgiven? That's the big thing. So Jesus is focusing on what? What Job needed. Not what Job wanted. Job needed his spirit to be right with God. You and I need our spirit to be right with God. Jesus is saying, tell the guy to get up and walk. He's been lame since birth. Another great lesson in Job. He did nothing for that trial. And God didn't answer that prayer that he had when he was 12. He was a man. But Jesus said, what was harder? To say, rise and walk, or your sins are forgiven. So Job, God wants to give Job what God knows Job needed. Not what, every, not what Job wanted. Jesus is making the same point that God starts in his first speech to Job and the others. The spiritual is more complicated and more important. Since you can't control or create the physical, don't tell me how I should govern the spiritual parts of my creation. Doesn't it seem that sometimes God is just saying that to us? Do you? Does, it seems that God is sometimes saying things like, do you believe in me or don't you? What else do I have to do? Or am I only as good as my last miracle in your life? If you truly believe in me, then let me define my, I'm, this is what I, my take I think one of the things God is saying is if you truly believe in me, Job, if you love me like you did when you were rich and famous, and you had no health problems, you had no money problems, you had no job problems, you were taking care of your family and your wonderful family, if you truly believe in me now that you have nothing, apply that faith that you had earlier. You see, you see how it doesn't match up? You don't have the faith now for this trial that you had when you were living in blessings. And that's one of the lessons we have in the book of Job. I, I, I don't know why you suffer. I don't know why I suffer. I'm not talking about the ones that we bring on ourselves. But that's not what I want to teach in this book. I want to teach about the land. I want to teach against and how to protect and how to guard our hearts and equip ourselves to address and endure those horrible, horrific, trials that we go through that are not our fault or a family member goes through and we need to minister to. Or maybe we're broken because a family member went through it. Right? The backstory is, in my opinion, is this. To God's speech. Do you think Job ever left his deep belief that Yahweh was sovereign? Yes or no? Do you think Job ever stopped believing God was sovereign? No. no. I don't either. I don't either. I think it's peppered all throughout his speeches, even when he was mad at God. Do you think 
Uh, do you believe that Job ever left his belief that God loved and cared for him? Anyone else? I do. I think he. I think he lost that. I think that's the stage that God entered the picture in. Why did God enter the picture there? That's that's what we need. That's when that's that's when we need to hear from God. So God is stepping into this book at Job's worst time. Job has finally started to, to judge God. I don't agree. I'm sorry. I don't agree. I, I've been in really deep depression, and, and it can get so overwhelming that you can't even think. You just want the pain to stop. It, it doesn't mean you, you've changed your beliefs. I agree with you. <clears throat> when, that, when, when you're suffering and you get there, you know, uh, not everybody walks away and, and doesn't believe in the Lord anymore. I'm not saying God, I'm not saying Job stopped believing in Yahweh. Job himself has said, and I quote in many of these scriptures, uh, he blamed God, he said God was not fair, God, God um, handles the wicked just like he handles the innocent. So it's this tone that's become prideful. Job has also told God, if you were righteous, you would do this, this way. That's, that's different than we are so broken. We're so beaten down. Our heart is so broken. We wish God would answer. It breaks our heart that he's not answering. That's different than us uh, basically judging and condemning God for not doing it the way we want. I apologize for just blurting out. <laughs> I wish everyone blurted it out. Man. This is a, we're in this together, guys. Don't be careful what you wish for. Where? Well, that's why I want to get done as early as I can so we all can blurt it out. But no, blurt The most important thing about this class to me personally is if it ministers. I want the academics. I think they're, I think they're great. I think it's fun. And I think it's important. But I want it to minister. And, yeah. So when you were talking about that other scene where the, the paralytic was brought before Jesus, and as I was thinking through Elihu, I was reminded of, of John chapter 9. As he went along, he saw a blind man from birth, and his disciples asked him, Who's Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus' answer was, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the glory of God might be displayed in him. Yeah. Kind of the same thing. like. Yeah. Focus on the glory of God when you're in the middle of the suffering instead of turning inwardly and looking at yourself and asking the questions and being lost in your own little world inside your head. Look at the big picture, the bigger perspective. Look at the glory of God. Yeah, I mean, Jesus uses that as the example. It's the perfect example because it was, it was never, that was never taught. That was one of those traditions that crept in. And they had Job. They had the book of Job. They had the book of Job. That's been my my little canard all the time. Was like you have the book of Job, <laughs> you know. But the, there are scholars that think Job was written uh, post mosaic to teach against suffering, but in a compassionate tone, uh, speaking for myself. Um, whatever you know, whatever I can think of is the worst time of my life, suffering as a Christian, whatever that was. Um, I get, you know, I can remember not being um, close to the Lord. I can remember be believing that God, and I said to somebody, <clears throat> I believe in him, but I hate his guts. I said that. 
That's how angry I was. I'm still here. Nothing to be proud of, but it's the easiest way for me to convey a thought if I use myself. And it didn't take too long to get on my face and beg forgiveness. I was afraid to get up, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so, somebody raised their hand. I did. Uh, I thought that God hated me. Because of your suffering? Be because I did something wrong. You don't love me anymore. Mm. Yeah. That was my thought. I didn't, I mean, anger is just like pain, right? So you got angry. I, I felt bad for myself. Like, what did I do that you don't love me anymore, Lord? What Job said for 12, 15 chapters, yeah. right? And that's that's part of the practical part of the book. And we remember we've spoken about that a bunch of times. One of the things that ostracizes ourselves from God is what we do to ourselves. How many people in this room have ever thought that God was mad at them? Really? He's mad at me. And when you're suffering, it's kind of hard to to find the reserve. But that's what I mean about thinking biblically. Apply biblical doctrine to your life. What does Jesus say about you? What is your relationship with God? What did Job say over and over again? You know, what did I do? Show me what I did. And Job kept saying, let's go to court. I'm ready. I'm ready to go to court. I'll sign that piece of paper. I did nothing wrong. You have to show me what I did. So, God needed Job to come back to the humility that Job showed in chapter 1 and 2, where he said things like, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And shall we receive good from the Lord and not receive evil and disaster? In all these things, Job did not sin with his lips. That was Job in the beginning of his trials. Only God <clears throat> could know that Job was now sinning in his heart, the place that only God can judge. And only God could know that what the sin really was. The three friends accused Job of some sin, but at the end of their speeches, they admitted they didn't know what it was. Elihu was angry because they couldn't figure it out, and they didn't prove it. And then Elihu said, well, this is prevent your sins, your sufferings are preventive maintenance for down the road. God's going to teach you something now for you know, a lesson you have to learn down the road. Only God knew what rebellion and sin really existed in Job, and only God knew how, how to deal with it. Only God could know that all Job's blessings of career, wealth, health, perfect family, respect and admiration from his peers and colleagues that came had made Job self-righteous. There wasn't anything wrong with Job pleading his innocence because he was innocent. God called him blameless. It was okay that he called himself blameless in his actions. Remember I've said a bunch of times, blameless is different than sinless. Sinless is a human nature. Question, just why do you think God's response was exclusively directed to Job and not including of his three friends who were equally accountable for misrepresenting God? Hold that did. thought. I thought he oh. did. Yeah. Really? We're gonna, that's part of the end of the class. So hold that thought. <laughs> God needed to humble Job first so he could teach him and us what God's sovereignty and God's grace looks like. I'm not saying Job deserved his trials. I don't think he did. Neither did Jesus deserve his trials. God let both happen for God's sovereign reasons, which both amounts to all eternities and all benefit. I'm saying that the Sovereign Lord allowed them and brought them on him, and the Sovereign Lord is working something out in them, and the Sovereign Lord is going to do the same thing for you and I in our trials. After hearing from God in chapter 38 and 39, God's omniscience, 
um, presence or powerfulness in the universe, Job is humble. Something Job was, was, has not had from day one, nothing in his responses, except in the beginning of the first two chapters, he expressed humility toward God. <clears throat> God didn't stop the book there. God let the book keep going. Why? God wants us to see what happened to Job and Job's responses so that we understand we're capable of the same thing. Um, I'm going to read this and then let's see. Who has... Did I give anyone... No, I didn't give anyone that. The next one would be Job 40, verse 1 and 2, and then 40, verse 3 and 5. You guys are up next. I'm going to just finish up before we get to the second one. So Job repents in a humble, sincere fashion. In Job 42, 1 and 6, it says this. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no thought or purpose of yours can be restrained. You said to me, who is this that darkens and obscures counsel by words without knowledge? Therefore I now see I have rashly uttered that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, please, and I will speak, and I will ask you, and you instruct and answer me. I have heard of you only by the hearing of the ear, but now my spiritual eye sees you. Therefore I retract my words and hate myself and repent in dust and ashes. Uh, my favorite verse in the book is right here. I have heard of you only by the hearing of the ear, but now my spiritual eye sees you. We're going to hit that in God's second speech, so I'm not going to go after it a lot right here. God needed to reveal to Job that in his fallen state, he could never be blameless enough in his actions to truly earn salvation and have a right relationship with God. Our works don't do it. God needed Job to see that resenting God and questioning his justice and his fairness in Job's heart reflects pride against God. The events and timelines that God allowed are exactly what revealed that to Job. When Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane and prayed, he was asking for God's guidance on the things that were coming up. He was asking for it. When he suffered as much as he suffered on the cross, he asked God, why did you forsake me? Because it felt like he was forsaken by God. But this is, this is a great thing for us. We have this as an example, right? God didn't even spare himself going through that kind of trial. But God needed to define for all eternity what a right relationship with him looked like. And it didn't, it didn't mean if we have a lot of stuff, we're good with God. So God, <clears throat> excuse me, God needed Job to see that resenting God and questioning his justice and fairness in, in Job's heart reflects pride. I said that already. Pride did it with Satan, and questioning God's authority to be sovereign is what did it with Adam and Eve. Right? Isn't that similar to what, what happened with Adam and Eve? They were tempted. So you see a theme occurring here? It's that important. It's that important. <clears throat> God needed Job to realize he has a fallen nature, a sin nature. Just because God blessed him did not mean he had the right to question God's justice and fairness because he lost the blessings God had given him. They were God's blessings. Our heads are used to rationalizing ourselves to God, to tell ourselves we're basically good people, or if we fall, we can do enough good things to earn or win God's favor back. When I had sinned, 
and yelled at God. I wasn't it wasn't my second week as a Christian. Thirty years I'm but I knew darn well that the only way back was grace. God's unmerited favor. God's gift. Because if there ever is, a, if there's anything inside you and I that thinks we have to earn it, or that our bad actions, or that God doesn't like us, or God's mad at us because we had a bad day, you let the and you give the enemy a foothold into your life. And when that happens, you're less effective to build yourself up and to minister to others. That is the path of humanism and Gnosticism. Gnosticism is one of the early church uh, heresies. And whether we know it immediately, it's man's attempt that bring, to bring God down to our level. So think with me for a moment here in Job. And I said, and I wrote deference to Charles Stanford. But what do you used to say? Think. Listen. Listen. Are you listening? You guys are all listening. I don't get to say that. Maybe he saw somebody sleeping in the front row. Listen. Well, he sometimes, he spoke like he was having a burden sometimes. It's <laughs> <laughs> my wife's favorite preacher, so I'm, I always joke with um, Not a bad guy to have as your favorite preacher, right? God bless him. Um, remember in chapter 1 when Job made sacrifices for his children? In Job 1, 5, I'm amplified verse again. When the days of their feasting were over, Job would send for them, his children, and consecrate them. That's the term for uh, a, cleansing, a cleansing ritual before you make a sacrifice. Before being part of any sacrifice to Yahweh. Then Job would rise early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Job did this at all such times, in their hearts. Remember I said here that the Hebrew brings out that this sinning and cursing God in their hearts inferred that it probably not was not deliberate? If I wanted to, we can get into a discussion of sins of omission or commission. I'm not going to do it here, but it's a great verse for that. <clears throat> but even so, it showed that they, that they still might have been sinning against Heavenly Father even if it was just because of something they could do nothing about. They're feasting, they're feasting. Job was so worried that they were, their heart was leaving God because of their worldly activities. So this is the basis for the doctrine of total depravity and the sin of omission. It, that it's meant that, that they had placed worldly things above God in their hearts even without meaning to do so. Their human nature, you're totally depraved. Well, in God's first speech, he shows Job that there was something that would force Job to do the very same thing. Remember, Job was giving sacrifices for his children because they might have sinned in his heart. He never assumed that he might be sinning in his heart. He never says that. God knew it. In God's first speech, he shows Job that there was something that would cause Job to do the very same thing he feared his children might have done. Up until God speaks, Job thought he was right with God, just like his children thought they were right with God. Job knew his children needed repentance. Then he knew they needed an advocate and a mediator to plead their case to God. Then they would have a redeemer bringing them home to their heavenly father. Doesn't Job share those things, all of those things in the book? He talks about a mediator, he talks about an advocate, then he talks about a redeemer, prophesying about Christ. But Job never applied the same principles to himself. 
If God had not stepped in, Job would have never applied the same principles he thought for his children. <clears throat> he never humbly comes to God asking if God was judging him. He never goes to God humbly and makes sacrifices for what he might have done. He just continues to plead his case of being innocent. But even in that, God is sovereign because Job wins the case against Satan. He never admits out loud that he's sinned. And that was what Satan wanted. And Job was correct in doing that. But now we're dealing, what did we say? We're going past one realm and we're getting into the spiritual realm. Our heart. Job needed humble repentance. Job also pleaded his case on his own merits of righteousness. He never asked God for his forgiveness in case he was in sin in his heart, as he mentioned his children. Right? Job knew it was true for his children, but not himself. That is where God needed to bring Job, to a sincere understanding that no matter what the world tells us, good or bad, that we are totally depraved, we have a sin nature, and in need of his grace and forgiveness, he doesn't owe it to us and we can't earn it, but God gives it. He offers it to us. He was offering it to Job, Job just wasn't thinking about it. God chooses to show Job that he had no right judging God in the moral part of the universe because Job could do nothing that God did in the physical part of the universe. At this point, God has allowed Job to suffer, right? Job was blameless. He was doing all the right things. God's proving a point that you don't earn that. I love you. I'm going to see you in a little while. But right now, I'm taking it all away. Theologian uh, uh, Matthew Henry, I, I love this guy, he's an 18th century scholar. When God finally speaks, then Job's communion with the Lord effectually convinces and humbles Job. God had decided Job needed to be thoroughly convinced and humbled. The lessons of God's first speech is that without humility, it's impossible to have a right relationship with God. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. Please him. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. If we don't abandon our walk with Christ after God humbles us, then be ready to be remarkably delivered and be ready to be used by God to minister to others in Christ's name with a new, deeper understanding of God. God's first speech brings Job back to where he was in chapter 1 and 2. He humbly acknowledging God as sovereign over good and evil, but also worthy to be trusted. Some of your trials are challenging you to do the same thing. I think that what God did in his first speech was to bring Job back to chapter 1 and 2. Have a humble spirit and a contrite heart that will not despise, O Lord. I don't think God, God, I'm not very teachable when I'm, when I think I'm all that. I'm just not teachable. When I think I'm good, um, and, and I've gone through stretches where I've made tons of money, like an insane amount, and I've been bankrupt. When I was making tons of money, I thought I was good. I would pray, I would do the thing. I didn't really feel like this urgency to, to fellowship with God. It's our human nature. And although the Wesleyan doctrine of entire sanctification, which I think is a heresy, tells you that you can literally get to the point where your sinful nature doesn't exist in your life. I haven't met anybody yet. Wesley didn't even teach that. It's the people after Wesley that taught that. So these are practical principles, but my goodness, 
this is how I think God is setting us up to teach us about um, enduring suffering. Acknowledging certain things about us and God, as God defines it, allows us, I think, to be in a better position to move forward in this. So, we're almost done. God's second response, 61 response, but second speech in, in uh, chapter 41 and 2. Who has 41 and 2? I gave somebody that, I think, right? Chapter 40, verse 1 and 2. Bingo, go. Pass it out, please. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fall find a contend with the Almighty? He who argues and challenges God, let him offer up his answer. You think God can be sarcastic? Yeah. <laughs> I think Paul was very sarcastic at times. I don't think he was worried about it. I think God can be sarcastic. The Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He's kind of like saying, Really? Still? Really? He who argues and challenges God, let him offer up his answers. I'm all ears. And the Lord said to Job, this sentence structure adds weight to the claim that it wasn't Job who wrote the book. And I, I'm, I'm bringing up things because I've told you that I think Job might be Job or Ellie who might be the author, or we don't know. A lot of the other ones, Moses is often one of the top contenders. But this language and this Hebrew structure implies that Job was, the, uh, was not the author. Rather. So um, I'm going to read this. Chapter 43 and 5. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. The Hebrew there means, literally, I'm too mean and vile. I need to just shut up. I realize that I'm too mean and vile. And to the point earlier that we were making about our approach to God during suffering, the Hebrew word there is mean. Literally, I'm too, in other words, Job had gotten to the point where he was just mean in his attitude toward God. And, and what is Isaiah and I have been talking about? Like, when do you get to that line where, you, where God says, ah, it sounds like a curse to me, right? God is giving him grace. I, I spoke like this to my dad. I wouldn't have seen him the next day. God is giving him grace. Sorry. No, it's okay. That was actually my question. It was, where does it cross the line? I had that exact example. Yeah, I think here's the, here's the easy answer. God is telling us that he hasn't, he hasn't snuffed them yet. God's showing us that the line hasn't been crossed yet. So I will share with you what I, I feel firmly and I believe firmly, and, I would, and I, would, I would encourage everybody to read this book and read it with commentaries. Um, I believe after studying this book, and this is not the first time I studied it, but I'm telling you there's a lot of new things the last few months. God's grace is so much more the overarching principle of this book than the suffering. This book is about the grace of God. It really is about the grace of God. My goodness. Um, I told God I hated him. I'm teaching a book on Job in emergence. God is very graceful. <laughs> right? So I think God is... I think these questions are great. These are the questions we have to ask because otherwise we're walking around with questions. 
And eventually, we don't get them answered, we, we become resentful, right? Or we become apathetic, because we think they can't be answered. Some of them can't, but some of them can. By God not taking Job home and not killing him, which is what curse God and die is always about, he's saying, I understand. I'm being compassionate. In every stage of your suffering and trial, and these were horrific trials. Uh, and I, I often get angry at the thought of them sometimes. Like, God, wasn't there another way you could have taught us this lesson? Is it, wasn't there just a... Did this guy have to go through that? You know, there's different schools of thought, right? I don't know if it's Charles Stewart, who I love too, and I listen to him a lot of others, but some will say it's okay to get mad at God because that's how you build a relationship with him, get mad and then power, the amazing power that you talked about in your life, the Holy Spirit, how quickly you went from, I hate you, I know you're real, but I hate you, to being convicted of the Holy Spirit in you and, and coming back because you had the Holy Spirit, right? And some will say, no, that lacks reverence to get mad at God. Who are we to ever get mad at God? But I just think back to Pastor Ryan when he said once in the middle of one of the messages, the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is apathy. Absolutely. Where, and that's where the atheists and, and the people that reject God, I think, really are. They just, they couldn't care less. They don't want to have the conversation. Right. Like, we might believe and get mad at him or have different feelings like you're struggling with that you're talking about. But I don't think any of us can say we're apathetic. We don't have an apathy like where you get to the point where I don't even want to have anything to do with you anymore. Right? You guys have gone through six weeks of Job. You guys are not apathetic. <laughs> I just want to say quickly that someone who says God does not treat us as our sins deserve going along with what you're saying about the grace of God. And then along with the grace of God, Paul argues that the grace of God leads us to repentance. And I guess that's what happened to you, that you had those strong feelings and then you led you to repentance. But God is so amazing that he does not treat us as our sins deserve. You demonstrated with Job. All of us, we cannot even begin to comprehend the grace of God, and then that will lead us to repentance. Yeah, if God was going to be just, we wouldn't be here. That's just true. Right? So, I read 4.3. Oh, regarding uh, chapter 40, verse 3 and 5 that I just read, the uh, Keelan deletes commentary, which I use for Old Testament stuff, structure and meaning says this, Job knows he's not equal to the task imposed, so he keeps his mouth firmly closed. Most reference would be Job 21.5 and Job 29.9. For whatever he might say would still not be sufficient, and he knows it. Once he dared to criticize God's doings, but not a second time. Your point. For God's wondrous wisdom and all-careful love moves him, and he gladly bows. Now you're coming to the point you're realizing why I spent so much time talking about the spirit, why I wanted to lay that foundation and remind us all about how um, reverent we should be that we have the spirit of God living inside us. It's that spirit that will bear witness as we wrestle with God over these issues. God himself wants to answer and minister and lead you. He might have led you to go to Roman Catholicism class at Emergence and you went in the wrong door and you ended up here, who knows how that happened. But that's why I laid the foundation of the Spirit. Do you, do you think that God's response could also be also directed to Satan too? Because some of the language here, like, do you have an arm like God's? 
and can your voice thunder like his? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor and clothe yourself with honor and majesty. That's the very thing that Satan desires. Uh, be, my honest opinion is that this is directed at Job. Uh, God is, uh, Satan took those words upon, those thoughts upon himself. God is challenging Job, like, you're speaking as if you have this. You're speaking as if you know how to govern the, the uh, universe. So I'm, I'm not convinced that he is speaking to Satan, but I'll tell you what I do think. I think all of this stuff is a literal event. I don't think this, you've said this. It's not poetry to me, and I've given you a million reasons of the people that think it's poetry, and I've told you a lot of why, or legitimate reasons why it's not. And if it's not poetry and God is speaking in the whirlwind, everybody's hearing it. Unless he's choosing for one person to hear it, but I don't think so. And you're going to see why at the end. Did say, Satan at this point has lost the bet. Doesn't mean that these words don't apply to him. That's an interesting thought. I don't know. So, so on, on that, it sounds like, I don't know how far you were reading with those verses, but I feel like the longer you read them, the more those are distinctly God's prerogatives. Um, Oh, verse 11, pour out the overflowings of your anger, look on everyone who's proud and abase him, look on everyone who's proud and bring him low, tread down the wicked where they stand, hide them all dust together. I don't know, I, I wonder if what God is saying there is like, eh, that's my realm only. Maybe Satan was just clearly, it's he just, yeah, it's he was God just challenging. he thought he could do it himself. Yeah, it's God saying, this is my realm, this is what I can do. You want to be God for a day? You do it. This is what it means to be God. Yep. Who has Isaiah uh, 57, 15? And then the next one will be Isaiah 42, 3. So when we contend with God, we should end up being humble, right? But it's okay to contend with God. Yeah. It's okay. It's not okay for us to judge God. It's not okay. Listen, God brought these sufferings to Job. At the end of the book, you're going to see why I keep saying it over and over again. Allowed or brought, it doesn't matter. God was the one in control of it. Contending with God over it is different than judging God over it. Uh, I can sometimes be in a posture of worship or appreciation or thankfulness um, with God. So I want to balance what we've been talking about with these other verses. Who has Isaiah 57, 15? So when we contend with God, we should end up being humbled. But it doesn't always mean that we're being contentious. Okay, 5715, nice and loud. The high and lofty one who lives in eternity, the holy one says this, I live in the high and holy place with those whose spirits are contrite and humble. I restore the crushed spirit of the humble and revive the courage of those with repentant hearts. Who has 42.3? A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. When God moves us to humble repentance, and we accept it, what usually happens next is great comfort and restoration. And that comfort and that restoration is basically in our spirit and in our lives. I wanted to balance the overly adversarial tone that we've been, that we've been up against here. With these verses. Look at us, uh, 57 15. <clears throat> I live in the high and holy place with those whose spirits are contrite and humble. Right? 
I restore the crushed spirit of the humble and revive the courage of those with repentant hearts. This is Isaiah speaking. Some of the scholars think that he's speaking to, to the book of Job. So if it's true, and this, you really can't prove that, uh, it very, very well could have been something else prophetic going on here. And then in uh, 42.3, a bruised reed he will not break, and a fairly burning wick he will not cleanse. He will faithfully bring forth justice. When you and I are going through trials and suffering, these are just two verses where God promises not to destroy us completely. That he has our best intentions in heart. If anyone knows, I'm not the only one with gray hair and crow suit here. Does anyone remember Chuck Colson from the Watergate? His ministry, Prison Fellowship, <clears throat> Isaiah 42.3, that was the, the verse that he used for his ministry because he went into prisons and ministered to people in prison. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faithful burning wick he will not cleanse. So the writer Matthew Henry says, says this. I had written something, and I read this in Matthew Henry today, literally, so I crossed out my words and I put this in. Communion with the Lord convinces and humbles a saint. There is a need to be thoroughly convinced and humble to prepare us for remarkable deliverances. After God had shown Job how unable he was to judge the methods and designs of God Almighty, God puts a convincing question to him. Shall he that judges and finds fault with the Almighty instruct him? Now Job began to melt into godly sorrow when his friends reasoned with him. He did not yield. But the spirit of truth is speaking to convict Job of his inner rebellion, inner rebellion against God. Job yields himself to the grace of God. He sees his heart has changed from his original responses to God to now resenting and judging God wrongly. Job decides he has nothing to say to justify himself. He is, he is now realizing and accepting that he has sinned and calls himself vile. So when Job finally calls himself vile, there he finally admits that he sins. It's one thing for your friends, that chapter and verse you have come around and tell you that you're sinning. It's another thing when the Holy Spirit comes. Another reason why I laid the foundation for the Spirit. Would you say that he, he would have said the same thing if he hadn't have gone through this trial? Meaning, like, would he have said he was vile before this whole thing happened? Or is he saying he's vile because of his actions in, this, in the trial? I think the book, and when you look at the Hebrew tenses... Um, I think the book makes it clear that these trials were not only to teach Job, but teach all of eternity. Job just happened to be the guy. I don't think he would have ever gotten there. The greatest man in all the earth. And what's his first response is, I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. You're wrong for letting me suffer. Because I'm living under a religious system that says, I got all this stuff. That means God likes me. And, and Job was a great, Job was blameless. The God of the universe called Job blameless. It, we, we shouldn't trivialize that. This is, so sometimes what I've heard preachers and teachers do, they minimize who Job was because they want to make the point about God has a right to spank him and punish him. I don't think that's fair. I think if you're going to elevate Job, to, Job as a character in the book, you elevate that he was blameless when this happened. Oh no, I doubt it, really, but go ahead. So whenever I read it, 
this conversation, I'm thinking like, okay, is this a response to this guy, like the corruption blog? But I just wanted your perspective on like piecing all those together. I, I am right there with you. I often, many, many years ago when I first started reading Job, I went to Job because I was going through a trial. And I went to Job. Hey, you go to Job, you get, you get to the wisdom chapter, you get wisdom for your trial. Didn't answer anything. But I often didn't like the book. Or I didn't want to say that out loud. I, I was uncomfortable with how hard God was on Job and why God let Job suffer. I didn't realize what I realized this last three months, which is that why is the book of Job making such a big deal about the spirit? Now I know, because it, we're not going to get ministered to if we don't understand that it's the spirit of God and the same spirit that's inside us. We have to pay attention to that spirit. But the other side of the coin, more practically speaking, is that what came out of Job in the last part of his discourses is what God always knew would be. And if God never addressed it in the way he chose to address it, the retribution principle would be the way that you know, religion is set. Now we know that we have religions now that are based on works. You've heard me rail against the name and acclaimant movement that if your faith is good enough, you'll get a new car. I've always said that that's putting faith in your faith. That's not putting faith in God. Uh, that's just one theology that, that's wackadoo. But I think that God had to, God knew it was there all along. We just did. Right. So it's his grace and his mercy that allows us to go through these trials and we can count it all joy. Right, I don't, I don't always count it all joy. I don't either. I, but I now, do my best. But now I'm seeing it with different eyes. Like, Lord, if you didn't show us this, because we're so depraved, we would perish. Because right. you, you know it's there, and we don't. Right. So, um, you know, for me it seems like Satan plays the bet on pride. Pride's going to overcome your grace. That's Pride's going to overcome your relationship. Pride's going to overcome the power of humility. So Satan's like, I got pride. It worked for me. I fell. It worked for the angels. They fell. It worked for Adam and Eve. They fell. He may be a blameless man with things, which is amazing because when I, have, when I have things, I don't always, sometimes I idolize them. Right. So Satan, Satan placed a bet. And God said, what's more powerful is, as you just mentioned, it's, it's grace but it's about relationship. Right. God said, my relationship is the most important thing. And not only is he blameless, Job is blameless in his relationship with me now. I'm going to show and teach Job to be blameless in his relationship and, and strengthen him. Right. Give him an amazing understanding of who I am. Mm -hmm. You know, as a father, I can remember when my kids were you know, five, six, whatever it may be. And, uh, I had to punish them or teach them something. I've taken away Nintendo. I've taken away whatever. I've taken away for two days. And they couldn't understand. They would cry and be upset. And But I knew why I was doing it. And like you said, if I was to give them, if I was to explain really why I was doing it, hey, guys, you got to understand, when you're 37 and you experience this or in life and you face it, they're never going to understand what that means. But I know what it means. And for me to teach, to start teaching them these simple lessons now, that when they they grow and grow and grow, now the Book of Job is an extreme, it's extreme. 
but it's extreme on both ends. We focus on the suffering so much. We don't always focus on the beginning of the book where he was blessed and he was blameless in, in his relationship. He, he understood humility and blessing, but he didn't understand humility yet in suffering. And um, certainly I can look at my own life and, and relate to that. You know, I've, I'm sure we all have. We've all gone through moments of suffering and being like, ah, I don't get it. But I can look back at my suffering now and like, oh, I kind of, now, okay, now I understand. Um, you know, it reminds me of the verse in, um, probably for me, the scariest verse in the Bible is when, you know, in Matthew where, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, where um, Jesus says, I never knew you. Mm -hmm. He did all these things in my name. You're mm -hmm. telling me he did them all in my name, but I didn't know you. Yeah. And it's really about, what's he saying? Well, you didn't have a relationship with me. You may be able to do those things, but I just want to have a relationship with you. I mean, and didn't Job do what most of us do? He answered in chapter 1 and 2 how he thought he would answer. Like, I, blessed be the name of the Lord, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Shall I not receive evil and receive good and not evil? I mean, that was the beginning of his... So there's a level of humility that's based not on the trials. It's based on blessings. And that's a great point. So, but by the time we're almost done, this all comes back and gets woven together and we're done. So, does... I, I, was, I said this. Does, I wrote this to myself. Doesn't real repentance change us, right? When we repent in a situation like this, that's different. So, I had said, I wrote a note to myself, is Job still my hero in the story? He, he's definitely my hero still. So thematically, we're going to highlight just a couple more verses in the second species. Job 46 and 14, where God uh, questions Job again out of the whirlwind. And the fact that he's questioning Job again out of the whirlwind means he's still in the same mood he was when he showed up the first time. All isn't, you know, hunky-dory yet. God did not have to stoop down to minister to Job. There's many saints in Hebrews 11 that never got the answers, never got this experience. If you haven't read Hebrews 11, I suggest you read it. It's very telling. Uh, who, who, who did I give Jesus when I speak? Uh, who did I give uh, chapter 40, verse 7 to? Okay, and then the next one will be 40, verses 8 and 9. Job 47, dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Yeah, that's pretty, that's not hard to figure out. Dress for action is more of a military term. Put on all of your garb that you can. Let's do this. Chapter 40, verses 8 and 9. Did I give it to anyone? No? Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God that you can thunder with a voice like his? So here's one glaring practical lesson. In this verse, God shows us another tactic of humanism and our fallen nature. We blame God for our troubles. He's too holy. He's too silent. He's too hard to please. Sounds like Adam, right? It was, it was her fault. It was my fault. It was her fault. It sounds like Adam in the garden, doesn't it? It's Eve's fault. One of the tools the enemy of our soul always will use is to get you to blame God that he's too hard to please but you don't understand what he's telling you, or he's too hard. In other words, you're as angry of these sufferings like you're angry for Job. So you make yourselves look blameless. 
And that's what God is teaching me against fear. Dr. Sproul, I can see him yelling at you. God bless you. Right? The audience here. So now God tells Job to imagine he's God for the day. Show God how he would deal with evil and balance the scales of justice for all mankind at the same time if he had the knowledge and power of God. I can't think of, I can't help but think of that movie, Bruce Almighty. <laughs> so I'm going to read chapter 40, 10 to 14, and who's got the next one? The next one would be, did I give anyone 40, 15 to 24? I don't think so. <clears throat> Adorn yourself with eminence and dignity, since you question the Almighty. Array yourselves with honor and majesty. Pour out the overflowing of your wrath. Look at everyone who is proud and humble him. If you are able, tread down the wicked where they stand. Crush and hide them in the dust together. Shut them up in the house of death. If you can do all this, Job, proving your divine power, then I, God, will praise you. In other words, Job, you show me that you can kill them all for the right reason. Show me that you have all knowledge to do that. God's telling Job that godly justice is complicated and can only be done by a real, omnipresent, omniscient, all-powerful, all-knowing God, with the grace of God being the compass in that God. Wiping out evil and injustice would mean wiping out all of us immediately. Where's jo and that's what Job had been asking. What Job kept missing when he wanted God to... What about this wicked? What about the wicked? What about the wicked? God's giving the wicked grace. Like he gave Job grace at one point in his life. That's what about the wicked. What did God, what did Jesus say to Peter? You know, don't worry about him. If I let him stay until I come back, you follow me. I'm going to skip. You guys don't really. We don't need to get into behemoth and you know, Leviathan. Believe me, it's beginning. If you email me, I have a paper that I wrote on it for the class. I'll send you my paper. Okay? I won't take the time to pull it down. It is a strong apologetic for creation of ideas there. Um, yeah. It, it easily is. But I can tell you that I, I there's, there's teachers and commentaries that go on for 30 pages about their tale. And about the scale. And, and yes, I can see how you use it, but that's the symbolism that I'm suggesting to everybody in this room that you stay away from. When people get that in the weeds about that kind of stuff, it's just they're only using it as permission to give you their personal opinions, usually. That's a Rick opinion. That's been my experience with too much symbolism. Be careful. Don't develop doctrine on symbolism. Because then you, you kind of just miss, the whole point just gets lost in all the rubbish. Right. I agree with you. So I'm, we're going to we're gonna go to the restoration section. Oh, good. <laughs> Finally. Finally some good news. <clears throat> so God sent those trials not to punish Job, although Job thought it felt, Job said that it felt that way. It doesn't, it, to your point, if you're Job, it, you still feel that it seems petty that you're going through this, right? God saw an internal, eternal need for Job to go through what he did, just like God saw an eternal need for Jesus to go through what he did. Both for the purposes of God revealing to a fallen human race his sovereignty over all things. 
and his loving grace, which is his gift to us, to walk in and help us navigate our trials when they come. But it wasn't pettiness. It was for the salvation of Job's soul and for all who read the book after it's written. God needed to define himself in the areas of sovereignty and his grace for salvation. Because up until then, they weren't being defined properly. So let's get to the, uh, the restoration section. In Job 42, did I give anyone 42, 7, and 9? Oh, no, I'm going to read that. Did I give anyone 42, 10, and 11? Job 42, 10, and 11? No? How about Job 42, 12, and 17? Okay. God declares that the friends spoke with wrong about him and Job spoke rightly. Why? Well, let's read that. In Job 42, 7 and 9, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls, seven rams, and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you. And for I will accept his prayer, and I will not I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. <clears throat> so Eliphaz the Tiamite, Bildad the Shuite, Zophar the Nephamite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. So Paul, to your point, yes, God deals with the three friends, rebukes them. Job was saying some rough stuff about God too. What's the difference though? What's the difference? Job was the one suffering, crying out to God. The friends were the ones on the outside claiming to be speaking to God, but they were speaking wrongly and they were accusing him. Four times in these verses, God refers to Job as my servant. Remember we defined that word, the servant in Hebrew meant, yes, uh, it's one of a lord and master, but it's almost voluntary, and you get many blessings by being in that servitude. God tells the three friends that if they want to be spared God's wrath, they need to bring seven bulls and seven rams to go to my servant Job and offer up burnt offerings for yourselves. The number seven in the Bible is usually symbolic of completeness, of perfect work, of something now done correctly and is now finished and complete. The, this is very telling. God is inferring that what he wants to teach us in this book is now complete. It is, and it's also, there's nothing more to be, for, the, for the friends to be saying to Job about this incident. It is not to be added to. This is one reason that I push back a little on the claims that multiple people added to this book. This language here about uh, seven, uh, the number seven in the Bible being used here, it is a symbolic number. But if God is claiming that this book is now complete, the, the teaching is complete, um, I don't know, if, if, you're, if you're walking around later on and you just start adding to the book, I don't know how, I don't know how that makes it to where the Holy Spirit brings the book in. The practical lesson here is for us to know when to ask for forgiveness. If we are prideful and stubborn in our relationships, especially in the body of Christ, we will have a tough time finding peace from the Holy Spirit until we do. Notice a few things here in God's restoration of Job to fellowship with himself. Now, I didn't give anyone uh, chapter 42, right? 10 and 11? 
And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him and in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. Lord, forgive me, but I have never, ever been able to look at this language and not wonder, well, where was the family before? Yeah. <laughs> Big deal. Right. Whoopee, you showed up. God restores Job, the richest man in the world, the greatest man in the world, the most esteemed and the most intelligent man in the world. Now you show up? It questions their motivation. Oh, absolutely, but the, can't get into something that doesn't, it's not, doesn't exist there. So. Yeah. Job's family coming back and feast with him and show him comfort, but makes the point that everyone knew that it was God who brought the trials and allowed them. It's the same thing uh, to me, Frank. But where was the family while Job was suffering? When God did restore Job's fortune after he forgave and prayed for his friends. That's telling. God was not restoring anyone's fortunes until Job forgave his friends. So, I, don't, I think everyone here doesn't need me to explain about bitterness of our heart, lacking in either unbelief and forgiveness or unwillingness to forgive those that have wronged us. It might be, I just had this thought, that staring me in the face is like, talk about forgiveness. These family members that never showed up for the two years. But God forgave the friends. Did I give anyone 42, 12, and 17? Good thing it's the last class because the secretary would be out of work. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than, than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys, and he had also seven sons and three daughters. And in all the land where there were, there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years, saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. Lastly, we kind of get the answer of why God didn't let Satan take Mrs. Job. Right. <laughs> <laughs> She's probably like, really? So, um, another, uh, uh, I would say, connection to the creation story in question. Like, it, it stuck out to me that the, the daughters were named and the sons weren't. It made me ask the question, like, oh, why, why did that happen? It reminded me of the creation story. Or after the fall, when Eve was named, um, after the. Uh, they fell the sin yeah. presentation. So I was wondering if there was a connection there and or if there was a reason that they named the daughters and not the sons in the citizens. The only reason I left the daughters out was because I knew that I was going to be going long. But if you want to do a study on the daughters, they have, uh, they have Hebrew meanings. And uh, some of the scholars think that, they, that it reflects um, uh, grace and, and reflects the fact that they were... Why does God all of a sudden put that they were the most beautiful women in all the world at the time? So there's a lot there. I just, you know, maybe after. 
So do you notice that God doubled all the material things Job and Mrs. Job lost, all the material things? Why then did he only give the same number of children they lost? Job and Mrs. Job never lost their original ten children. Remember? They died. We didn't lose them. They were with God. We now know that Job's sacrifices were okay. So he didn't lose them. You can't replace us. You can't replace human beings. Wait, how do we know that they're with us? How do we know? God is restoring Job, right? He's restoring everything that they, that they have. You can, God can't re, uh, replace a human being that he created. That's a divine in the image and likeness of God. You don't just replace that. They end up in one place or the other. God had been sacrificing for his children. We now know that God was accepting Job's sacrifices. It was Satan accusing, through Bilibad, Satan was the one accusing Job that God crushed his children because, of, because they sinned. But remember, all, remember the three friends council is really representative of worldly council. Wait, how are we getting a distinction between replacing the animals and then replacing or giving, giving Job more children? The fact that uh, it's the exact same number of children, but it's not double. It's not double. If, if God goes through the whole litany here of doubling everything. Why would he avoid the children? Because they were never lost. Three daughters he had at the beginning, and seven sons and three daughters he had at the end. Right. right. So when he doubling. goes into eternity, it's double. When is Job going to see the doubling? When he goes home. Oh, that's uh, perfect. Sense. When he goes home to heaven. Ah. Oh. 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 Job. Is God mean? is blessing Job. And what are some of the things God's telling Job? <coughs> well done, my good and faithful servant. Does the son that died when David sinned with Bathsheba get taken up into heaven too? I can't do that one now. <laughs> Email me and we'll talk about it. So David says, I will go to him. Yeah, so right? he is in heaven. So another thing I see profoundly here is that we talk about the material blessing. So Satan attacks basically the extrinsic blessings of God. He doesn't seem to directly attack the intrinsic blessings of God to Job. His humility, his hospitality, his wisdom, the things that he did, you know, in, in this leadership role. And and so I really believe that he he maintains his integrity throughout the whole course of this, as we see. And it's interesting that Satan doesn't attack that or challenge God, you know. You know, remove Job's wisdom or remove, you know, the other intrinsic values of blessing. He, we see so many 
values of blessing as being external. Well, let me let me offer this up, um, and you guys and you decide what if it if it addresses that. When when Satan goes to God and says, "Look, of course he loves you. Look at all you've given him. He he has everything." And God goes, "Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. He's got everything. Okay, you can take it." And then Satan comes back as go uh, Job never curses God, and he goes, look, well, yeah, that's the material stuff. If I get his physical health, he'll curse you. And God goes, okay, go take that too. <clears throat> Don't you think that part, in Satan's temptation to get Job to curse God and die, there has to be part of that as a humility thing? Because Job seemed to have lost his, his humble nature toward God in the latter part of his discourse when he was, uh, he was telling God he was unfair, he was telling God he was unjust, he was telling God that he didn't handle, thank you guys for coming. He was telling God that he didn't handle the way he was uh, judging him and the way that he blessed him. He was, Job seemed to go after God pretty hard. I think that lacks humility. Can I speak to that for a second? In Job 29, the beginning of Job same thing that he went to God for his sons. And his sons might be sinning in their heart. Now God has to reveal that to him because he's never doing it. And now Job is humbled. And now Job repents because this is the area that only God can deal with. Right? It's the spiritual realm. So at the end of the book which is where we are now I wanted to make the point because it, it does come up sometimes with questions about well, what, hap what, what happened to the kids? He never, he, his children were doubled. He's going to find them in heaven. He didn't lose them. God didn't lose them. What, and here's the other thing. Here's a glaring question. If the retribution principle is wrong, why did God bless Job by doubling his material blessings at the end of the book? Why, why do you think God did that? It defeats the point, doesn't it? I would say... Out of God's goodness and grace, man. And, and too, like, it's not earned, right? Like, you've been saying about this uh, repentance. Uh, I think Joe was very proud, like, uh, he made comments that everybody hushed when he spoke, that he was, like, the greatest. I mean, he was a man. So he, he was very prideful, but now he really humbled himself before God. And he never asked God, like, take all this sore, this pain, 
blessed me again. He could have said that as he was talking to God, but he just repented. Right. Uh, he never asked God to restore anything, and, 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 and that took a lot of humility. He just really wanted a real relationship with God, right. and God in his goodness and grace, giving everything back. God, uh, Job was humble. Job, when Job just got his, when God came back into Job's life after he repented, Job realized that what he needed and what he wanted was God, not the material thing. That, so once Job gets there, God, if God chooses by His grace to bless him, it's kind of a, to me, God is showing the people around Job, this comes from me. This comes from me as a gift of grace. Job didn't earn this. You guys live under this principle and this theology that he had all this stuff because he was the best and nicest guy in the world. And he did all those things. He did minister. But remember we, what we said? Job had knew that, his, that there's a sin that goes on in, in his children's hearts and that it's pride. It's rooted in pride. And pride will always separate us from God. But Job never applied that same principle to himself. God brought him to this, to this point in his life for his sake and for ours to teach us that we are separated from God in all things. We are totally depraved. Our sin nature will never, ever, ever offer us anything to have us in the right relationship with God. Job never gets his why question answered. It makes sense to me now, because if God did give him the why answer, I think he would have been the next religion. He would have held it up on a pedestal, and that's all he would do. I'll get to that why answer. I got an answer, so whatever I do bad, I can always pull that answer off the shelf and apply it to my bad works. God wanted to establish that it's all by grace. God wanted to establish for the greatest man in the world, the kindest, the most generous man in the world, that he still had pride in his heart. And God let it come out the way he chose to let it come out. If you want to say, I wish he would have done it another way, add at it. Mm -hmm. God chose to do it in the way he chose to do it. And isn't it, I don't, I'll speak for myself, the fact that God chose to do this to the, the greatest man, quote unquote, chapter one, in the world, the richest man, the most intellectual man, the, uh, the kindest man, the most generous man, he allowed him to lose everything is a precursor for Christ. Jesus, Jesus humbled himself, the kenosis, gave up everything to save us. So with that, in, jo in John 21, 21, this just seems to me like how we should end the class. <clears throat> The apostles are questioning John, like I mentioned earlier, about a certain apostle that they thought was going to be around when Jesus came back. And Jesus said, if it's my will that this man remains until I come, what is that to you? The book of Job basically is saying to us what Jesus says at the end of this verse. Those other people, all that other stuff, that doesn't matter. You follow me. All right. Margaret, would you pray us out? Yes.
know that seasons change in our lives and times change and there may be times of struggle and difficulty and hardships coming up in our lives or the lives of those that we love or the lives of, of, of those that we come in contact with. Lord, help us to be prepared to share your love and encouragement. Help us to have wisdom and insight. Help us to apply the things that we've learned here in the book of Job. Help us to be sensitive to your Holy Spirit and help us to be able to encourage Lord and love others and point them to you. Father, we pray that these deep truths would stir in our hearts and minds that we would think rightly about you based on your word and that you would um, allow us in the days ahead, Lord, that we would be able to have much fruit for your glory and for your kingdom. We thank you for the time that we share together here in this room and the fellowship that we've had here and the conversations and, and the encouragement back and forth. And we pray that that would continue, Lord. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys. You've been great. Yeah. 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 We got cake. I heard we got cake. <laughs>